Broadcasting live from the North Fulton Business Radio X studio, it's time for To Your Health with Dr. Jim Morrow. To Your Health is brought to you by Morrow Family Medicine, an award-winning primary care practice, which brings the care back to health care. Hello, this is To Your Health with Dr. Jim Morrow, and that's me. We're very happy that you joined us today to, to listen to what we have to say about different topics in medicine. Uh, I am with Morrow Family Medicine in Georgia. We have offices in Cumming and Milton. And in our practice, we use state-of-the-art technology and try to combine that with some old-fashioned care to do our best to make you feel both cared for and appreciated. We like to say that we're bringing care back to health care. And uh, so far, we're very happy with the way things have gone. I've been in this practice now. I've had this practice for almost for right over nine years, actually. And... Uh, and we've had to make some changes with the current pandemic, with the uh, coronavirus pandemic, as you might imagine. We're currently using our coming office for well patients. So if you're having a physical blood pressure check, cholesterol, reef, med refill, anything like that, we'll bring you into the coming office. And if you're sick in just about any way, especially respiratory or GI, we're going to see you in the Milton office. And we're doing testing down there and so forth. And I'm happy to say that we're on the verge of being able to do testing in-house. Right now, we're sending it out, so it takes a day and a half or two to get it back, but not too long anymore. So I'm excited about today's podcast because today we have a real microbiologist. Now, I went through college studying microbiology, college and graduate school, got my master's in in microbiology, doing work with viruses. So I'm very interested in this whole pandemic thing. But today we have Dr. Amber Schmidtke. And uh, Dr. Schmitzke is a microbiologist who's worked at Mercer Medical School. And Amber, I'm just so happy to have you with us today. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got started in microbiology? Sure. So um, I kind of took microbiology as an elective in college. I was actually planning to go into cancer biology. Um, I always knew I wanted to be a scientist, but again, I took it as an elective and it changed my life. Um, I took that and I was so um, impressed by the way that bacteria in particular um, were able to, you know, cope with all the different stressors that they're in. And I just, for whatever reason, I was hooked and totally changed my career path, went on to graduate school, um, did a postdoc at the CDC in Atlanta, um, stayed on afterwards to work um, for a few years, and then transitioned into education. Um, So I've been teaching undergraduates and medical students for the past three years. That's awesome. What was it like being at the CDC when you were there? What was the, the current threat at the time that you were dealing with? Sure. So I joined the agency, um, like I said, as a postdoc. So that's sort of like the apprenticeship you go through after you get a PhD. Um, And uh, I joined in January of 2009. um, And that was the year of the H1N1 pandemic. So that was um, a very timely experience. Um, I was also pregnant at the time with my first, and uh, I was working in the pertussis laboratory. Uh, And, uh, you know, that was a little bit of an interesting situation too, because I was the first pregnant woman that they had had who they hadn't had a chance to vaccinate prior to starting to work in the laboratory. So I actually wasn't allowed to work in the lab for the first uh, two trimesters. And then I was sort of the experimental guinea pig of, I think we can vaccinate her 
once she's in her third trimester. The kid turned out fine. So that's good. But now that's actually what we recommend is that pregnant women get vaccinated in their third trimester. So uh, yeah, I'd like to say I was there during really interesting times um, in many ways that helped prepare me for kind of keeping track of what's going on with the pandemic that we're currently facing. The pertussis thing for people that don't know pertussis is whooping cough or causes whooping cough. <clears throat> and it's interesting in my office, I see people my age, grandparents or grandparents-to-be, very regularly who are there because the mother of the upcoming baby has made it clear to them they can't be in the same zip code with that child if they've not had an updated pertussis vaccine. And they're there to get it because they're going to buy cracky. They're going to be there with them for that baby when it comes. And we do a great bit of a great deal of that. And it's always been very interesting. Um, but I'm glad to know that you are the reason that we know to give pregnant women the vaccine in the third trimester. That's fantastic. So as you've dealt with the pandemic and your experience here in Georgia, I know you were part of the uh, the COVID-19 data uh, task force. What What's happening in Georgia right now? What's currently uh the trend is, and how are we seeing this pandemic right now? Well, right now, um, you know, we've, we've been through two big peaks with this pandemic. Uh, we're coming down from the second one right now. We're seeing cases and hospitalizations decline. Um, deaths, thankfully, are starting to decline as well. And so that's all really good news. Uh, but I think many of us are sort of cautiously holding our breath right now because we've recently reopened K-12 through schools from across the state uh, for face-to-face instruction. Colleges and universities are um, back to um, business. And, uh, you know, we just had Labor Day. So I think that we're all sort of cautious, especially knowing that those three things are happening and we're about to head into seasonal influenza. So with Labor Day right here on our heels, I think the the concern is that in two weeks we could have a ridiculous number of cases, uh, just like they saw in Texas after Memorial Day and so forth. And that's a very legitimate concern. And then, like you mentioned, throwing the flu in there, talk, if you would, about uh, having the flu and COVID-19 at the same time. Well, we know that co-infections are possible, and we know that each disease on their own, unfortunately, can be very severe for certain individuals. Um, I don't know that we have a lot of information about the two coexisting in the same, you know, I, I don't know that we can clearly distinguish more severe cases when you're co-infected versus not. Um, and I think that, you know, we just really need this to be the very best vaccine year we've ever had for the flu vaccine. Um, We really need people to get that vaccine as much as possible. What's interesting is in the Southern Hemisphere, you know, it's their winter now. And so they're going through their seasonal influenza or have been. They're about done with it almost. Um, And they've had a relatively mild flu season. And we're not sure if that's because of, you know, the virus being less virulent or is it a factor of all the social distancing and public health guidance that we've put in place for COVID also interrupting the transmission of influenza. So I think we'll just have to kind of see how that happens here in the Northern Hemisphere um, as our season gets going. You know, I've told several people I, I would expect us to have a little bit less trouble with the flu this year just because of social distancing and people wearing masks. I want to talk to you about masks as well, but uh, it's the vaccine that's really going to make the difference. And um, I think, I think we will see more people getting it this year. I've had more people 
Well, let me rephrase that. I've had people say to me they were going to get it this year who have not historically gotten it. Uh, so I, I hope you're right, and I hope that is going to make a difference. But the mask thing, um, you know, people say, well, you change, you're changing your mind. And, and this course in science is called learning, and to them it's called changing your mind. But they say, well, you, you're changing your mind about masks because Fauci came out and said you don't need a mask. And then he said in early April you do need a mask. And what? tell me what the mask does exactly and, and how can people understand why the mask is important? Sure. So um, the we know that the virus can transmit through respiratory droplets. So those are sort of these mucusy sort of uh, droplets that can carry the virus out of your nose, your mouth, when you're talking, uh, coughing, singing. We've seen evidence for that too. Um, and so what the mask is there to do is stop um, the the spread of those droplets, which can usually move about no more than three feet usually uh, from an individual, um, unless it's a forceful cough. And that's why the six foot distance is recommended. Um, and so that's the goal is to really kind of curb the, the floating around of those respiratory droplets um, and keep them from landing on other people that might get sick. So if you do cough and you're wearing a mask, the virus is riding on the droplet. So when you stop the droplet, you stop the virus. Right. We do have some limited evidence that aerosol or airborne transmission may be at play too. Um, we, it's kind of a little early right now to make a conclusion about that possibility. Um, and in that case, then, you know, that might change the perspective on masks too. You pointed out earlier that, you know, it seems like science has been changing its mind. Um, and that's kind of the beauty of science is that, you know, when we get new evidence, we change our hypothesis and we go in different directions. Um, so honestly, we don't normally see the scientific method playing out in the public in real time. It usually doesn't get this much scrutiny, but it does now. And in, in many ways, I think it's another opportunity for us to educate the public about how science works and sort of its collaborative nature that gets better over time. The aerosol thing came out, what was it, three weeks or a month ago, that, that idea came out. And so people have been asking me about it. And the way I've explained it is that it's very different from measles virus, for example, which is just in your breath. And that every person, the on all for measles is 12. Every person with measles would infect probably around 12 people. And with this, is closer to one. So I'll be sitting in the exam room and say to the patient, well, if the person that was in here previously had measles and you and I walked in this room here now 15 minutes later, we have the measles. And, and that's just not the way this virus is. It's plenty contagious, but masks are so important. And there has been, in, in the last few weeks, a study, I think maybe a study, showing that it might actually help prevent infection to a small degree. Right. right. There's some thought that it might uh, decrease the um, infectious dose um, or, you know, make it harder for um, you to build enough of like a quorum inside of a person's body to trigger a full blown infection. Um, so that's that's important, too. Um, for people that don't know, you sort of have to have a critical mass of virus in order to see the symptoms, be transmissible, that sort of thing. And so if um, we can sort of keep that quorum below the threshold, um, then the person may not actually develop symptoms. They may not transmit to others. So those are, that's kind of the thought process behind that study. I think I'm familiar with what you're talking about. I love the use of the word quorum there. I haven't 
had a great term to use for that with people, but most people know what a quorum is. So I'm going to, I'm going to take that from you. Thank you very much for that. I appreciate it. So if you look at the pandemic and, you know, we've gone through this big lockdown, but I think in business, the biggest thing that's changed is people working from home. And uh, Forsyth County, where my coming office is, was recently named, and I thought this was kind of interesting on how they knew this, but named the top county to work from home. And I don't know where they got that, but it was named to that. So I thought that was interesting. But talk to talk a little bit about how the pandemic is important to the success of these businesses, both small and large. Well, I guess what I would say is that, you know, we all want to get back to normal and every country in the world is dying to get back to normal. Um, and we're all sort of going to get to the other side of this pandemic. Um, we're all sort of struggling with some of the same economic impacts. Um, but I think that the fastest way to get back to normal is by curbing the spread of the illness because it drives everything from people's spending behaviors to their comfort level with going to a restaurant or an amusement park or all sorts of things. And so in many ways, I think the best way to support our businesses, whether they're small or large, is to you know support them in the best way we can for now um, through ordering takeout or doing online delivery of different things. But um but really, honestly, it's getting our disease under control so that kids can go back to school and our workforce can go back to work and um, all of those other critical um, pieces of our economy can get back on track. Yeah, I think it's I think it's absolutely critical, obviously. And I, I'm very concerned about what's going to happen to some of the commercial real estate around because where we work, um, where we live, the the place is covered with these three and four story office buildings where people leave their home and drive to their cubicle and sit there and work all day. And now they're not doing that. And I think historically, honestly, companies were afraid people wouldn't do the job if they weren't there with somebody hovering over them. And they've proven that not to be the case. And so I just, I think a huge percentage of these buildings are going to be sitting empty and that's going to be a huge problem. I don't, I don't have any idea what they might do with that property and, and that real estate. But I think it's going to be a major problem. I don't think there's any question about that. And so if people will do the right thing as far as masks and social distancing and not going places when you don't feel good and getting the flu vaccine, then I, I think obviously we can make a big difference in that. So I think I agree with you. I think it's incredibly important uh, that we get this thing under control. And a few minutes ago, you were talking about uh, concomitant infection with the flu and COVID-19 and, and so many people say to me and you, you hear it everywhere oh, it's just the flu uh, this this virus is just the flu and i can't say on a podcast how very sick i am truly of of hearing that but why is this not the flu what's different between this virus and the flu well, I guess um, one of the easiest things to point out is that this is a lot more deadly than the flu. Um, we can, you know, because of the way that we weren't necessarily ready for this pandemic, we weren't testing the way that we probably needed to in the beginning. Uh, we have imperfect data. And so there can be a lot of squabbling over the numbers when it's cases or hospitalizations or deaths even. Um, but one way to see around some of our limitations in data collection is to look at how many deaths we've recorded in total so far this year compared to previous years. Um, those are called excess deaths. And so anything every week when they report the deaths, and again, this is from all causes, um, there's a threshold. And above the, that, it, that threshold is what's defined as normal for our time and um, season. 
And we've been well above that threshold since the pandemic began. Um, We've had bad influenza seasons before, and we do breach that threshold, but it's usually for a month at max. We've had a sustained excess of death since March. Um, And it's true, not just for the United States, but also for Georgia. And so in many ways, I know that, like I said, we have imperfect data, but that's, that's pretty stark. Um, And again, it's death of all causes. Um, And really, the only thing that has changed this year compared to the past five years is the arrival of the pandemic. And not not just deaths, but, you know, people get the flu, and they get over the flu, and they go on with their life. And people get COVID-19 and maybe let's say you have a, a significant case that you're sick with what feels like a bronchitis or a flu-like illness for 10 days or 14. And, and then the next week, you can end up with a coagulation problem. You can end up with blood clotting and such such as that. A few weeks ago, we had a patient show up in the office who was two, it was two and a half weeks since he had been diagnosed with COVID-19. And he was not terribly sick. And in the office, he had a dead left ring finger. And he had no great reason to have that, had no history. This is a young person, 40, I think. But his left ring finger was was dying. It was not quite dead. And he ended up in the hospital on blood thinners, IV blood thinners. And he, uh, to the best of my knowledge at this point, saved his finger. But he had, he had nothing going on prior to COVID that would make him have that kind of thing. And there's so many cases of of that and so many cases of myocarditis and all these football players you you hear about you know the concern with them is myocarditis because it would affect their play pulmonary fibrosis would affect their play too and i don't know how sick you have to be to develop pulmonary fibrosis but there's so many things the flu just does not do and i'm now i'm preaching i told john didn't have a sermon today but i guess i do and and it's just so very clear to us that this is not the flu. And I think it's important to get that point out every time you possibly can. So you you mentioned the data and and it's certainly imperfect, but what specifically would you like to have when it comes to the data? I think more than anything right now, we just need really great transparency from all levels of government that are collecting the information. Um, we've seen some things happen in the state of Georgia where it looks like they're graphing something weird, but they're not explaining uh, what they're doing. It may be totally okay, but you need to explain to the public what they're looking at because we're talking about graphing and we all learned how to graph in high school, but these are not the kinds of graphs that we learned in high school. And so there's an education piece that's lacking. Um, I think that we could really use some more information on like the turnaround time that a person is experiencing when it comes to collect getting tested and what that turnaround time is before we get a result. Um, it'd be good to know that on a county level as well as a state level or regional level. Um, I think it would be important um, as we track um, into the um, influenza season and we know there's going to be a potential wave um, coming. I think we need to have greater clarity on what's going on with our healthcare workforce uh, in terms of their illnesses, their hospitalizations, their deaths. Um, the state does provide some information on that, but it's not nearly as informative or clear as we see for um, the general public. And I think it's going to be, you know, that's one of our key, key resources in fighting this pandemic. And so knowing what their strain is, um, is going to be really important. But we also need a lot more information on these long haulers, like you're talking about, the, the, the idea that it, it's not just survival and death, 
with this infection. There's also this long-term, in many ways, uh, maybe even semi-permanent damage that's associated with this virus. And And we just don't have Um, good studies yet on what those long-term impacts are going to be. We don't know whether they also apply to children as we um, are back to K through 12 instruction. um, And, uh, you know, we're seeing more mass gatherings of children. Um, So those would be things I want to know as well, both as a public health microbiologist, but also as a parent. Yeah. And, and as a parent, I'd love to know your feeling about kids going back to school. I'm not going to ask what you're specifically are doing, but what's your feeling about virtual versus in person and masks and so forth? I, I I personally think kids need to be in school because that's where they're going to learn. But I also think masks should be mandated in school. Uh, and and our county schools here gave them the option of coming to school or doing virtual, but they did not mandate masks. And I'm pretty sure the reason they didn't is because the governor did. But I, I do wish they'd done that. So what's your feeling about all that? I think that there's nothing that we can do that won't incur risk, um, whether unless you're just staying at home all the time. And we know that that's not a tenable option. Uh, so I want to first make sure I point out that no, no parent is necessarily doing the wrong thing in this situation. We're all having to make the best of an impossible situation. Uh, what I will say is that um, if you have a high disease rate in your county. Um, and when we were living in Georgia and thought that we were probably going to be schooling in Georgia this fall, um, I was planning to do fully virtual with both of my kids because the disease rate was high enough in my area. And I was not convinced that the schools were taking the virus as seriously as I was. Um, for those reasons, uh, we were considering virtual school. Uh, we've since relocated. We live in the Kansas City area now. And um, the, the disease rate is slightly less than what we saw in Georgia. But we're also so um, we live on an, uh, an army installation and they take it really serious. <laughs> so I'm a lot more encouraged. Um, they do have a mask mandate. And so we have um, we have one virtual learner in our house and one who is attending in person. Um, but he wears a mask all day long. They all do. Um, so I agree. I think if you're going to go to school in person, um, having a mask mandate is critical to the success of that school staying open. Um, I've warned parents that follow my my work that, you know, I would not plan on your school having continuous instruction, even to Halloween, you need to have a backup plan that, you know, what happens if my kid's school closes again, like they did in in the spring, it may not be for the whole semester, it may just be for a week or two, but you need to be prepared for that. Yeah, I think that's something that if that did not happen. I think all of us would be absolutely shocked by it. So the at the end of the day, the thing that's going to I believe the thing that's going to help get us out of this is a vaccine. So uh, if you would educate us a little bit about the vaccine candidates and what the timeline could actually be, because my patients believe they'll have one by election day (laughs) and they're not going to. So tell me about that. So right now there are um, one resource that I follow a lot is the New York Times um, that they have a neat tool where you can see where all the vaccines are in the process um, of FDA approval, um, distribution, that sort of thing. Um, It's important to remember that under normal circumstances, it takes years to develop a new therapeutic or vaccine uh, for public use. Um, And so obviously when we're in a health emergency, some of those steps can be not necessarily skipped, but shortened or overlapped so that they can be more efficient. Um, So that's what we're seeing now. Uh, We have, um, and then of course the, the 
vaccine is going to go through different phases of testing um, to get us to the finish line of where it might be used in the public. And so um, currently we have, from what I can tell, we have 24 vaccines in the phase one stage, which is where they're, they're kind of testing and trying to figure out the ideal safety and dosage sort of issues. We have 14 that are in phase two, which have expanded safety trials. So again, you notice safety is kind of a common theme, especially in the earlier stages. Um, and then uh, we have nine that are in phase three. Uh, which is just before you start getting to early approval for use. Um, and so that's good. And then we have three that are in that limited, you know, test run kind of situation. Uh, we had a, a development yesterday um, where AstraZeneca, one of the companies that's making the vaccine, had an adverse reaction in one of um, their, their test subjects. Um, we don't know exactly the details on that. It's proprietary right now um, to know how serious of an issue that was or if it was just sort of a coincidence like a person died in a car accident while they were one of their test subjects, for example. Um, we just don't have enough clarity on that. Uh, I would be surprised, though, if we saw a vaccine before the end of this year. Uh, when we were in the H1N1 pandemic, that was the fastest I think we've ever seen a vaccine developed. And in many ways, we benefited because it was an, an influenza virus. We could basically plug and play with the existing seasonal influenza vaccine. And so we were able to mass produce in six to nine months. Uh, understand that that is the fastest we've ever done. Uh, so the idea that, you know, we first had vaccine candidates in March, the idea that we would be ready in six to nine months with a completely different family of virus seems a little unrealistic to me. Um, I would think that the earliest we could probably see is maybe next spring or early 2021. Um, and that's assuming everything goes right. Um, there's a lot, you know, this Dr. Morrow from being in science and, and medicine, that there's a lot of steps where things can go Sideways. And I think the most important thing is that we have a safe vaccine that people can trust at the end of this, because it has implications not just for COVID, um, but for people's trust in all of our vaccines. Um, and those are such a key uh, tool that we have in fighting infectious diseases in our communities. You know, a lot of people I talk to just say flat out, I'm not taking the vaccine because I don't think it'll be safe. It's happening too fast. And you mentioned overlapping of phases. And if I understand it correctly, what they're able to do right now because of Operation Warp Speed, which has dumped billions of dollars into this thing, is that the pharmaceutical companies are able to combine phase two and three, where phase two is typically one that lasts quite some time. And at the end of that, if it's not safe, then they have to just go back to the drawing board. And every penny that they've spent on that thing at, to that point is wasted. And now that they don't have to do that so they can look for safety and efficacy at the same time in a phase two, two, three combo. And that's going to cut a lot of time off of it. But when you, when you look, like I said, you know, it's not, doesn't happen quick, but you look at something like mumps that was, I think the fastest one before H1N1 and that took four years, but we've been trying to get a, a vaccine for RSV for probably 30 years and can't do it for HIV since the late eighties and can't do it. And, and I, I think it's, it's remarkable. It's absolutely a, a godsend that we are at this point here on September the, what is it, the 9th of 2020, and we're already putting vaccines into phase three. And, and people say to me, well, I'm not going to take it. When it comes out, I say, well, I'll be the first person in line. <clears throat> and you're shaking your head, and maybe I might be right behind you, but I'm going to be at the front of the line, I can promise you. 
because this the vaccine is what's going to make people able to get back to some sort of sense of, of normalcy. So I'm, I'm a big believer in it. Yeah. Agreed. Um, but go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say, just like you, though, we need it to be safe, right? Um, and as soon as we know that it's safe and efficacious, you and I will be both, you know, elbowing each other to get the first doses. Um, I do want to make sure, though, you know, there's going to be some sort of decision process that's needed to prioritize who gets the vaccine when. I think we're also going to need to make sure that our healthcare workers and frontline workers are among the first to get this so that they can work and uh, really care for the ill, Um and, and prevent spread through those sort of locations. Um, but yeah, I mean, and then it's essential workers and it, it's everybody that we need to get back to normal life. And trust me, nobody wants to get back to normal more than me. I promise. I want my kids back in school. I want to go back to work. I want to have uh, a semi-normal situation. I want to be able to go and hug my family members, uh, extended family, go on vacation, all of those things. One of the things that we have not, read as much about what people do talk about is the social and the social sociological and psychological aspect of this you mentioned people who are sick and want to hug family and that kind of thing but these people that are in these assisted livings and nursing homes who family cannot go see i think in georgia i think they just last week opened it back up for nursing homes but uh just they've gone so long without any contact from their family. There's no way on the planet that doesn't have an impact on these people and on their psyche and on, and on not only on the older people, but also on the rest of the family as well. Right. I was just reading something um, in a journal of the American medical association where they looked at um, depression uh, before and after the pandemic and where, you know, which demographics are being impacted most. And it's serious. We're seeing a lot of depression now that we didn't necessarily have before. Um, it tends to skew with uh, financial stability. Um, like one of the most stark things to me was uh, families that have more than $5,000 worth of savings. Um, they were like, half as likely to be depressed as those who had less than $5,000 worth of savings. And I know we've seen other data that comes out that says that most families could not survive a $500 emergency. Um, so the idea that so many people are being laid off and so many people are having to file for unemployment right now, um, you know, it's, it's a big deal. Um, we're seeing it in all age groups. We're seeing it um, more so in men than women, which I thought was interesting. Um, and, uh, you know, it, yeah, exactly. It's We can't there is no one problem in this pandemic that is more important than the others. I think, you know, we have an infectious disease problem. We have an economic problem. We have a mental health problem and all of these things are competing at the same time. Um, I think that the root cause of all of this is the virus itself. And so in some ways I feel like it kind of needs to take priority in order to address some of these other issues. But in many ways, the pandemic has exposed a lot of our failings um, or weaknesses, I should say, in other areas. We don't have a robust mental health uh, system in this country to take care of people. Um, when you have health insurance that's tied to your employment and you have a pandemic like this with so many people losing their jobs, it's not like these people are freeloaders. They, they, they were working people, but now they have no health insurance. And so, you know, it, it's, it's a, it's a challenge and we're seeing problems with um, disparities in health um, across different races and ethnicities, the rural versus urban divide. Um, like I said, this, this pandemic has been very eye-opening um, about some of the things that I think we'd prefer not to talk about most of the time. 
Um, but hopefully we can learn something from this and develop better systems in the future to address some of those disparities. I agree. You know, if you look at everything you just mentioned and how it's affected everybody in the country and the world, really, but talking about the United States. And, and I think the, the corollary between this and the Great Depression is extreme. I mean, it's it's high unemployment. It's people without health insurance. It's people that don't know how they're going to get day to day. And then they have the threat of this illness on top of that. And, you know, we're, we're definitely seeing more people in our practice who are anxious and depressed. Um, because of this, and, and they can point very clearly to the, the cause, which is not always the case, but the treatment still remains the same. You know, you have to give these people some sense of hope, mm-hmm. and and I hope that the things that we've talked about today will 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 help people understand that <clears throat> that we believe as scientists that there is hope here, there is a light at the end of the tunnel, and 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 that it will be uh, a good thing coming out of this. Uh, but it's not going to be fast, and it's not going to be when people want it to be. So I, I, I really appreciate you coming on with us today and, and talking with us. Uh, uh, if I'm not mistaken, I think John Ray, our producer, might actually have some questions or comments for us. Yeah, just a couple of uh, add-ons, Dr. Schmidtke, and thanks for your work, um, by the way. And you've got a newsletter that we need to shout out. So let's make sure we do that. But when you covered in your work, that urban rural divide in Georgia, and I wish you would comment on that and what you're seeing there right now. Sure. So, um, my, nobody will know how to spell my last name. It's tricky, but it's Amber Schmidt com is how you reach the newsletter. Um, but, and you can find it through Facebook and Twitter and whatnot too, if that's easier. But, uh, yeah, one thing I really look at a lot is the rural versus urban divide. I used to work at Mercer University School of Medicine, and one of our key missions is looking at medically underserved Georgia, especially the rural um, populations. Um, and so when we look at how the pandemic is playing out, um, you know, we can look at the disease rate, case rate, um, adjusted for population and the death rate. Um, and our rural counties have been above that state average um, and well above the national average for a very long time. Um, in fact, we have, um, I, I can't remember the numbers right off the top of our head, my head, but the um, the death rate in particular is, is honestly uh, so much higher than the national average. And it's also higher than the state average. Um, and it, it, it's just unfortunate, uh, you know, because we already know that these counties struggle with um, healthcare deserts. Um, so they have potentially a lower um, general state of health heading into this pandemic because they may not be able to monitor and treat chronic conditions uh, when they do have a problem. Some of these counties don't have a hospital, so they're having to cross counties in order to seek that medical attention. And then when you have a, a problem like COVID, which can present as a vascular disease, as uh, Jim was saying, you know, every minute counts. Uh, when you're talking about strokes or other things that can be associated with this. Um, so it's, it's been, uh, and the, the, the challenge that I see a lot of the time is the messaging. Um, you know, in urban settings or suburban settings, we have really good messaging to get the word out to people about the risks of COVID, what they can do to stop the spread, that sort of thing. But we don't have a unified message like that going out to rural counties. Um, they don't have a strong media presence. Um, and 
in many ways, the state is the one that is informing them the most. And so it's hard when you see what looks like conflicting guidance, um, sometimes between wear a mask, don't wear a mask, a mask mandate's unenforceable, but the county over does have a mask mandate. Nobody really knows what to do. Um, and so we need probably more clarity and uh, more of a unified message um, to, to reach those rural counties because they are in a more vulnerable position. And have you tracked the differences across local localities in terms of uh, mask mandates versus not and how that affects um, uh, COVID infection rates and cases? I haven't looked at it in the state of Georgia um, with 159 counties. It's just been a lot to try to keep track of. Um, and so I haven't, <laughs> why do we have 159 counties? I don't know, but, um, but uh, you know, I, so I don't know exactly, uh, but I do know that we've seen data from other States, um, North Carolina in particular in Kansas too, where I live now. Um, there have been some studies that show that mask wear can really, really limit uh, disease transmission. And we've seen that even in Chatham County. Um, and this is anecdotal. Just, this is just me happening to check, happening to check the data. I haven't done any statistical analyses uh, to, to really, dig at that. But I know Chatham County with their mask mandate really saw a drop in their transmissions. Um, that was, of course, before uh, schools reopened and and things like that. So we'll have to see if that holds. But I'm hopeful for them. I really am. Now, you're a microbiologist. And um, so, and we're, we try to bust myth, myths around here uh, on this show. So let's talk about the origins and talk about this this statement i'll put it like that that the that this virus started in a lab in china talk talk okay, so, address that from the point of view of a microbiologist um okay so i will say that uh it's a pretty inefficient virus if you were trying to design something to be a, like a bioterrorism agent. Um, I'm not saying I want it to be any worse than it is right now, but um, it is not very, if, I mean, it can bind its receptor inside of the host cell fairly well, but it's not, it has some, some dis- points of disagreement. And so um, I guess I would say it's not as efficient of a virus as you would expect. Um, the other thing is that it just doesn't, it doesn't make sense that it was, lab manufactured. We've seen the genetic analysis of it. Um, It doesn't seem to match what was being worked on in the laboratory, but it does match what was being seen um, in the bat population um, in China. Um, We suspect, so usually with coronaviruses, what happens is it goes through a non- you know, a non-bat intermediary before it gets to humans. And so in this case, we thought it was the pangolin, which is sort of like an armored armadillo um, is what it looks like. Um, And so I I haven't had a chance to go back and and check to see whether those studies have been replicated multiple times. Um, But that's the, the, the prevailing hypothesis of how we think this got to humans in the first place. You know, SARS or COVID-19 is one of the SARS viruses. Um, So SARS, the original, um, was a lot scarier of a virus. Um, It is more uh, lethal, but not as transmissible as COVID-19. So in many ways, we should be thanking our lucky stars that we didn't get this one or we didn't get that one. Um, And in some ways, you sort of wonder, you know, is there enough cross protection from getting one virus versus the other that, you know, perhaps this is the silver lining of this is that we got the weaker of the two viruses and maybe it will confer immunity to the other. Um, but I don't think we've seen enough studies to know whether that's actually the case. Um, but that would be great if it were the case. 
For sure. And just one more time, I mean, we're going to put it in our show notes, but if you would, uh, for those that would like to connect with you on social media and of course, get your newsletter, um, if you want to give that information one more time, that'd be great. Sure. So you can find me as Amber Schmidtke, which is spelled S-C-H-M-I-D-T-K-E. Um, you can find me on Facebook and Twitter. I'm also the blo- the blog or what newsletter is amberschmidtke.phd at substack.com or dot substack.com. Sorry. And, um, and I have a podcast as well called Public Health for the People. You can find that on Spotify and iTunes and Apple Podcasts and all those sorts of things. Awesome. That's wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much, Amber. I really appreciate your time. And you mentioned that you just moved to Kansas and your husband was in the Army. So thank you so much for being an Army family and for your entire family serving, as I know that you are. So we really appreciate that as well. I appreciate your time. I appreciate your expertise. I think this will go a long way towards answering some questions for people. And uh, John, that's to your help.